Welcome to the On The Edge Podcast with your host, Scott Groves. Hey everyone, it's Scott Groves with the On The Edge Podcast, and I'm here with my longtime friend, I think that counts, eight months, that seems long, um, Susan Goebel. She is the uh, the owner, get this, of Scaling Management Consulting Group, which uh, came up because uh, she needed the SEO, so we have all the words of all the things she does, Scaling Management Consulting Group in the business title. But the way that I always describe it is Susan places fractional COOs. So when you need a chief operating officer or you need an operations manager and your side hustle or your self-employed business or your small corporation hasn't quite grown to the size where you can drop 100, 200, 300 grand that it takes to get kind of an entry level operations manager or COO, you go to Susan, she finds somebody so you can kind of pay by the hour or by the month or whatever the case may be. And it's epic. Um, I've been working with Susan for a little bit under a year as we hired a fractional COO and a fractional operations manager. And I got to tell you, even though I quote unquote, only get 10 or 12 hours of work a week out of them, it's like having a full-time employee. So uh, other than that, she comes from London, Canada, not London, England, which is the the, the fake London as some people have described it. Uh, I think it's way cold in Canada. She said it's not that cold, so that's good. We're going to dig into that. Uh, she's got a wonderful 11-year-old daughter. And what did I miss in the Reader's Digest introduction of Susan? Susan? I think you only missed the puppy dog. Oh, the puppy dog, Leo. I forgot about Leo. How could I forget about Leo? Um, Cool. So tell us what's going on. First of all, we're recording this, you know, the the latter quarter of 2022. Give us the update in Canada, in business, in your business. Like what's happening in Susan's world? What's in what's in focus? Oh, my gosh. Do you know what I absolutely love to do, Scott? What's that? I love to read. Really? Terrible. I know. No, I like to be educated and I have a favorite topic right now. I've got books downstairs and I'm just diving into them all about generations and the generations in the workforce in particular. So when we talk about business, it is a fascinating topic from the great generation all the way through to the Gen Z's. And I looked at the, around the, the kitchen table when I was doing a family event recently, we're all actually represented. No wonder we can never communicate. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, because Gen Z, Gen X, baby boomers all communicate communicate in very different ways. They all have very strong opinions about other generations. Uh, you know, I feel like the millennials and the Gen Ys and the Gen Zs, you know, they're getting a little bit of um, – uh, unadulterated, maybe misplaced hate from the baby boomers. And so, somewhere like if you were born prior to 79, 78, you kind of hate the whole generation of people that came up with smartphones and computers and whatnot. So as as you're, I'm guessing you're doing this for kind of like work study. What are you learning about, uh, what are you learning about generations? Oh my goodness. They do not like one another. And, and the way they communicate is super interesting. Like my daughter, she's 11. She's going to be called a Gen Z, right? She'll never know the day when a phone, even though we call it a phone still, you actually put it to your ear and talk to people. Right. A phone goes here, don't, don't we? I mean, we look at the people. When it's broken, it's confusing. Right. 
<laughs> right. Or, or you don't even look at them and talk. It's all text and emojis and, and, and it's, it's a different type of, I, I heard somebody describe emojis are the modern day hieroglyphics where like pretty soon we're going to have a whole generation and a whole workforce of people that are just like smiley face, pyramid, uh, eggplant, da, 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 da. And you have to like decipher, did they just tell me good job or did they tell me to F off? Like I'm not, I got to decipher what the hieroglyphics from this Gen Zer were meant to tell me. And I'm their boss. Like you're supposed to pick up the phone and call me, not send me nine emojis and have me try to decipher these hieroglyphics. Like it, it is a, it is a real problem. And I'm sure this is something you're addressing in your business when you place fractional COOs with founders or business owners, like that connects gotta be hard, right? Cause like, you know, I'm, I'm that weird, not quite Gen Xer. I was born like between 78 and 84 is this weird, like in between where we had, we had the Oregon trail on computers. So we kind of grew up with computers, but I didn't get my first cell phone till I was 20 years old in the army. So it's like, I'm in this weird in between generation. And then I would guess Bob, who you partnered me with as my COO, he's more of that kind of prototypical baby boomer in his 60s. And it's like, we get along super well, but the people just five or six years younger than me, we don't even speak the same language. So tell me about these challenges and like how you're learning about generational shifts for your business. You're so right. We were talking about it in terms of our clientele. the avatar we typically serve of the smaller businesses they tend to be more millennials, older Gen Zs. But my avatar for fractional COOs and integrators tend to be, I'm a Gen Xer, so I'm, I'm not even a cusper, I'm, I'm true Gen X. And then as you know with Bob, Bob is a baby boomer. And the suite that we have for those COOs, because they've done 20 years in industry, they've got a bunch of experience under their belt. They tend to be a little bit older. Came through the pipe one day with a lead, and this is where the, the spark of the conversation started. Had this great conversation, paired him with someone, actually paired him with Bob, had a little great meeting, and the conversation came back. And it was my favorite quote, and I still use it, even though it was six months ago. I loved Bob. There was just an energy offset. In other words, you thought Bob was old. Right. <laughs> Bob was not right. old. The problem you were expressing in your business was that you keep hitting the same ceiling over and over again. You're a serial entrepreneur. You've hit four million several times. I want to pair you with a guy who can take you to the next level, and he's it. He's got the depth of experience that you need to guide you to that next level, but you didn't want to actually do that. Right. <laughs> so it's fascinating. So when we want to communicate with our clients, Scott, yourself and others, it's really a matter of, okay, well, how do I need to communicate with you? I'm, I'm an old fart. I'm okay with saying that, right? Yeah. I'm a Gen Xer, uh, but I know I communicate differently. And I know that I'm as a Gen Xer with a you know, latchkey kids and all that. I'm fiercely independent. Right. That's part of what we do as a, as a generation. Whereas millennials, um, they're a little bit different, a lot more uh, community building. So when you're communicating with them and your team members who tend to be younger at this point in time, right? They're millennials and Gen Zs. So when our COOs and operations managers go into businesses, a lot of the population that they're, they're dealing with tend to be millennials. How do you help communicate and how do you deal with diversity? Because the baby boomers and the millennials think very different about diversity in the workplace right. as an example. Right. And so let's talk about who you serve quickly and then maybe we can talk about how you serve them. So I'm kind of, when I got introduced to you by our friend, Amber Vilhauer, shout out to NGNG Enterprises. Um, yeah, she, she was telling me, she's like, you know, 
if it's your side hustle, maybe the number's 500,000. If you're like a solo entrepreneur, maybe it's a million. But there's this founder's dilemma, to reference the book, where eventually the founder, and, and I run a coaching business as my side hustle. I'm still doing 30, 40, 50, 60 hours a week in the mortgage business. But as my side hustle, I have this great coaching program. We have great clients. We, we have a great product or service that we sell. Um, but as the founder, plus my buddy Chris, who has been the catch-all for technology and marketing and the whole nine yards, you get to a certain plateau where it's like, all right, well, now we have to bring in some real professionals, right? Can you tell us where the founder hits that ceiling, whether it be, you know, revenue or time or maybe maybe some business dilemma where they start looking for somebody like you? It's like, hey, I've gotten it this far. I'm self-aware enough to know that I can't get it to the next level myself. I've got to find somebody like a Susan to help me, you know, get some professional, <laughs> some professional help. I don't need a coach. I work really hard. I'm motivated. I love my product. But just in building the business, I'm a little lost because I'm stuck at X. What does that X usually end up being where people have to look to people like you to serve them? That's, that's a great question, Scott. And so we actually see that there's some very interesting demarcations. If you're under a million, if you're making 250000 to 750000 annual in revenue, you definitely want somebody on your team. But if you are making $250,000, you probably can't afford to have somebody on your team. But sometimes you have those strategic questions and you just need that go-to. Yeah. So how do you deal with that? That that mark in between the set, the two hundred and fifty and seven hundred and fifty thousand is is fraught with so many different challenges for founders. They're looking at product market fit. What's the best way to attract and retain my customers, my clients? How do I serve them best? You know, there's only so many hours in a week. Is this a side hustle? Is it really a full time thing? I don't know yet. Um, once they hit 800,000 in annual revenue, between 800,000 and 1.2, you've figured out your product market fit. You've figured out how your clients come into you, who you best serve. Usually you've got some systems in place, but now things are starting to break down because there's only so many hours. You are either going to break through and grow if that's your true desire, not everybody's desire is growth, or you're going to scale back, right? It's the e-myth. We see it every right. single day. Can you it explain really for those that aren't familiar or never read the book, The E-Myth, which is like require reading for anybody that wants to be an entrepreneur. Can you explain to people what The E-Myth is? The E-Myth talks about the journey of that solopreneur who's great and have, having a skill set. So they talk about plumbers and electricians and whatnot as an easy way to think about this. They grow a business because they've got a skill set. They know what they need to do. Now they're growing the business. They might be bringing on a few team members to deal with the extra clients because they've done a great job. Excellent. But you get to a point where you are no longer able to scale that business because you're trading time for money. How do you change the business? What is the glass ceiling that you need to break through? And so you either break through and you become the owner, the CEO, the founder of the business, or you usually hit the glass ceiling and you go back down and now you're back to being the technician again. Yeah. So you're the operator in the business. So let's go back to that plumber example, right? Like, cause I've, I've seen this exact scenario play out where uh, I had a home warranty. I don't know if you're familiar with those up in Canada, cause you guys do real estate much different than here. But when you buy a house in America, usually the seller will pay for a home warranty. It keeps them out of lawsuits so that if something breaks, you have this warranty where a company will come in and fix it. Right. And, um, we had the, the day, you know, a month after we closed escrow, the hot water heater exploded. And this is like a big, 
you know, 200 gallon hot water heater with a regulator that pressure pushes hot water throughout the house during the hours that you're most likely to need a hot shower so that you're not waiting there for 15 minutes for cold water or whatever the case may be. I mean, it was an expensive job. And this guy came out and he was a pro. He had all the tools, great customer service, dressed well, explained the problem, like went above and beyond, like just an amazing plumber. And so I, you know, I happened to be working in the garage, working on like a podcast thing. And he's like, oh, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm a coach and I do mortgages. And and he's like, yeah. And, and he just starts offering up his life story. He's like, basically, I'm the world's best plumber but I suck at lead generation. So I just, you know, I just sign up with like these home warranty companies and these third-party aggregators of leads for plumbers. Cause he's like, I can do a great job. I can make 150, 200 grand a year being the world's best plumber. But you know, I know the company that's doing the lead generation, they're making a couple million dollars. Right. And it was just kind of this resignation from him of like, I'm this great solo technician but he'll never grow to the person who can schedule out five other technicians, generate his own leads, bring his brand to other people. So he's, and by the way, even in California, that's a pretty good living, 150 to $200,000 doing a trade. I mean, you can own a house, like you can have a great living, you can provide for your children. But if that guy got ever got the mindset of like, no, I wanna build my own plumbing company, this might be where he brings in people like you. And that's exactly the case. You're at that critical juncture. Now you need to take a different step with your business. So that's when you, I would say the first step that you need to do though, is not hire a fractional COO. Right. Right. You need to just have somebody you can call on a regular basis. Maybe it's once a month because you're not ready. Who's the first hire you need to do? You need to sit down and do the thinking time. I had a great conversation with a lead yesterday. The guy was at $1.2 million for his business. He's in a great space and he's never done any business planning. His business is ripe for doing an awful lot because he can definitely scale that to beyond eight figures. But you need the right people to think, then you need the right people to do. Right, Scott, you and I had had this conversation way back, almost a year ago now and said, you know, you need the team first because the team is going to put you in, in good standing and that you were the size of business, that that was an okay thing to do. Not everybody is, you know, there's a, there's quite a spectrum in there. We want to make sure that when we're offering those pieces of guidance over the 800 K mark, you know, that's when you're ready for something, but depending on what your team consists of, you know, does it consist most of marketers? Does it consist of operations people at all with any set level of skill set? Does it consist of coaching or you know, whatever your business is? We need to then make sure that you have the right expertise. Yeah. Is it a COO? Are you ready for a COO or right. are you not? Yeah. And and I don't mind sharing kind of the numbers where we were, where we're going, you know, what the plan is, like whatever. Anybody, the, the, the 23 people that listen to this podcast, they can know everything about my finances. I could care less. Um, I actually feel like I came to you all a little bit prematurely. Um, then maybe most businesses were mainly because the coaching business is my side hustle, but I want to provide an amazing professional product. And I don't mind giving up a larger percentage of our income and revenue to staffing and growth because I have my primary source of income with his mortgage. So my numbers might be a couple hundred thousand dollars premature, but I think it's a decent case study to talk about. So, you know, in 20, uh, let's see, we're in 2022. So in 2020, I had about, $500,000 in, um, in gross revenue, 
no freaking clue what the profit margin was because like my books were out of out of shape like my bookkeepers yelling at me i have no idea you know and then there's like there's a lot of expenses where it's like well was paying for zoom a coaching expense or a mortgage expense because you meet with mortgage clients on zoom and you meet with coaching clients on zoom right so it's like it was all disjointed and, and confusing and that's kind of when i first started hearing your name and talking to some people and getting some references for a fractional coo and then at the end of 2021 november december we took in a huge amount of revenue because a lot of loan officers, we coach loan officers and realtors, a lot of people decided they wanted to pay for the upcoming year in advance, which was probably a good plan because in 2022, we've been getting schlocked in the, in the like just beat upside the face with interest rates rising. So at the end of 2021, I took in a couple hundred thousand dollars of revenue that took us to about $800,000 of revenue in 2021. Plus my bookkeeper was on my butt to, um, you know, to actually do a better job. So after we paid for expenses and travel and live events and all the craziness, it's so much more expensive to run a coaching business than I thought, you know, we were probably at like net, 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 net profit to me of that 800,000 was maybe $300,000 in revenue, which is amazing for a side hustle. I'm super blessed. Love our coaching clients. I can't say enough good things about that and like what we've grown and shout out to Chris for being there from the beginning to do all the nominal tasks that just got the program up and running. But, you know, it took six and a half years to grow this funnel of business to where, you know, we probably had about $300,000 in profit. And I was looking at it and I was like, well, I don't want to grow just for the sake of growing but all of my expenses are pretty much fixed. So if I can double the top line number of, you know, 800,000 to a million six, I'll quadruple my bottom line number in profit because there's really no extra expense. You know, I have some Zoom accounts, maybe the cost of the live events scale a little, little bit. I got to send out a few extra t-shirts and hats because we have new coaching clients. But for the most part, I was looking at this, I'm like, hey, we could get this from 800,000 to a million five, two million, two and a half million, but I really don't know how to do that. I'm in this founder's dilemma dilemma, right? Where I'm just like, all right, cool. I know how to coach. I know how to get on stage and give people great advice. I know how to hold each other accountable, but like, I don't know how the F to do Facebook marketing. And, and like Bob asked a couple questions when we started, he's like, so where, where do you, where, where's our budget? And like our net profit? I'm like budget, what's a budget. He's like, your business doesn't have a, but he's like, how are you bringing in so much revenue? And you're such an idiot. And I'm like, it's amazing. I tell him, trust me, barely graduated high school, but somehow we figured it out. So you know, now it looks like we're on track for somewhere around, depending on how November, December, when a lot of our clients pay in advance for the year, you know, we're somewhere around probably a million dollars in revenue this year. Um, so we've grown by, you know, 30, 25% in a down year for the mortgage industry. And mm -hmm. I'm excited to report that I actually know what my net profit is. Our net profit's like in the high 30% range. So on every dollar we make, like, you know, about 38% is coming to my wife and I's pocket, you know, after all expenses, which is insane. So if I can scale this, yes. you know, and selfishly, if I can scale this to $2 million and basically completely replace my mortgage income, I can give more and more of my mortgage income to the gals that have worked so hard for me for a couple of years. That's, you know, my selfish motivation is to make more money on the coaching so that I can be altruistic and give more money to the people on the uh, mortgage side of the house. So Tell me where I was thinking about this right, where I was thinking about this wrong, where I was a little premature, what's working, what's not, using that kind of case study of the last three years going from half a million in revenue to a million in revenue, and now we're really in a place to scale. Um, what did I do right? What did I do wrong? <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, uh, first you called us. You did that right. You took yes. some advice. So yay. Yes. Yay for us. <laughs> but I just, want to, <laughs> I just want to celebrate your numbers because look at that. 38% profit is where you should wind up. You're doing great. And as absolutely your industry has gotten smacked this year so bad from February on. And you've got 25 to 30% growth. Yeah. Right. That's to be celebrated. That's amazing. And I bet Bob made, you know, your numbers and I bet you do things like quarterly planning and all of those just you know, stupid business stuff hate. that I'm supposed to do. Yeah. I'm like supposed to project revenue. I'm like, I don't, I, I don't know. Stripe comes in and then it gets paid. And then like, like something that we found out is he's like, he was a little bit worried about our net profit. And I was like, oh yeah, well don't forget there's that $6,000 repayment. He's like, what $6,000 repayment? I was like, well, Stripe offered to give me a hundred thousand dollars upfront for a very low fee. And then I would pay back like five or $6,000 a month for a year and a half. And I wanted that $100,000 because there was an amazing investment opportunity in an apartment building in Savannah, Georgia. And you know the minimum was X and I didn't have X. So I basically borrowed $100,000 from Stripe, which is our credit card processing company based again, you know, security against future revenues. And he's like, oh shoot. He's like, I didn't even realize that was disappearing off the top of the monthly deposit. So when we put back in that $6,000, which is basically just raw profit because it's a, it's a payback of money I've already taken out of the company. He's like, yeah, your, your profit margin went from like 22 to 38%. We went from like, uh, I'm a little scared to man. That's, that's world-class in a service business to have that level of profit. And that's like something I wasn't even thinking about much less tracking. And he's like, yeah, these are the conversations we need to have every week, buddy. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> like running a real business. Um, so yeah. Bob, Not a side hustle anymore. Yeah. It's an actual real growing and scaling business. And it's going to meet those needs for a long time. Cause that, that's not going to be, you know, you're to pay that back. Right. And then where does the profit go? Right. It goes right. back into investing in the company and whatnot. And you have it there to be able to make sure you've got, you know, the emergency fund or whatever you need to do because industries go up and industries go down. Totally. And by the way, can I tell you when I realized this was a, a real business? Um, a couple years ago, we were updating our trust with our lawyer because we hadn't put, you know, who we wanted to be the guardians of our second kid. I don't think we had even added Alina to the trust yet. And he's like, yeah, he's like, and if something happens, you know, who gets consolidated coaching? I'm like, what do you mean who gets it? If I die, it just dies. And he's like, he's like, no, man, if you get hit by a bus, you have this business that's spinning off a half a million dollars of revenue you know, even if there's only $200,000 worth of profit left over, don't you want some of that to go to one of your coaching clients who takes over the coaching business? And some of it goes back to your wife, who's a 50% owner of the company. I'm like, oh yeah, my wife having like an extra $100,000 a year in revenue, if I got hit by a bus, that would be a good thing. So she just doesn't have to totally live off the life insurance or go back and get a job so she can take care of the kids. And I, it was at that moment where I'm like, oh, I got to write my business interests into my trust. This is crazy. This is like a real thing. This is like a real child. You know, it was like Pinocchio became a real boy at that meeting. And, uh, and that shortly after that is when I got in touch with you. And so we've kind of named our succession plan. I have two coaching clients that will take over the coaching business because they've been around for about five, six years in the coaching business. And they could, they could really replicate what I'm doing with kind of the team and the framework that we have. Um, and uh, yeah, it's crazy. Like it became a real business. And then Bob's making it into a real, real business. <laughs> well, that's Bob's job. So get, way to go, Bob. Totally. So, so why, don't, why don't you tell us real quick, well, finish, finish your thought on what I did right and what I did wrong. Well, I just wanted to point out one of the right things that you just talked about. The succession planning is a conversation that not enough people have, right? You've got this business. And even if it's your primary business, there's a lot of people out there that aren't having conversations with their legal professionals to make sure they have the living will for the business. A few years ago, I had no idea before, when I was a solopreneur 
I was like, I don't know. What do, what do you mean? What do I have to have that? Mm-hmm. Right. But of course you want to make sure your family, the remaining members and, and whoever they're well taken care of, and you've got to have those conversations. That's where some of the things like Bob come in. <laughs> yeah. Those chitty cats, right? Yeah. But what, one of the interesting pieces though, about uh, your structure for your business when we started was that you also had people on the inside of your business that had an operation bent to them, right? So you had other people from their mortgage business that were helping out in the in consolidated coaching. And so you had these other pieces that not everybody at the $800,000 level do. Yeah. Most of the people at the $800,000 level, they've got people on their org chart or their accountability chart, whatever they want to call it. Uh, and everybody reports into them. So it's very, um, they're talking to everybody every day, every week, and it's a lot of communication, which right. is is great to see that you can put a structure in place. So you did that really, really well. Well, thank you. Now you were going to say something. I oh no, I, I was just saying. You know, what, what you brought up a, a thought for me. One of the things I'm most excited about of hiring a real operations manager and a real chief operating officer is uh, we have a, a call every Monday and Wednesday at 2.30 where we have my virtual assistant who does a lot of the marketing. We have my personal assistant that does a lot of the onboarding. Um, we have our Facebook ads gal who's a uh, part-time contractor. She's amazing. Uh, shout out to Bree. Um, you know, we have all of them on a meeting with Ashley and Bob, our now part-time operations manager and COO. And like, I don't have to attend those meetings. They like, I, I got back like two hours of my life because they're actually running the meetings and being like, hey, what's the report? What's the KPI? Where are we growing here? And I'm like, wait, KPIs? I've been reading about this stuff for 20 years. I never had any. Um, and uh, and I was like, this is amazing. Um, so just getting my time back has been something that's been well well worth the money. So what, can you tell the audience, what does a you know, COO do, what does a operations manager do? And maybe I'll have Chris link to, I think this is a mutual friend of yours too, Chandler Bolt, who's in the author self-publishing school world. He runs a very successful Fortune 5,000, Fortune 1,000 business. He's growing extremely fast. Great guy, Chandler Bolt, has a whole business helping people write books. And he has this great video on YouTube, which we'll link to about like how to go from having like an executive assistant, you know, to an operations manager, to a COO. So could you maybe talk through that evolution as a business is growing? Like what does an executive assistant do versus what does an operations manager do versus what does a COO do? And when do we need to start looking at bringing those people in either fractionally or maybe one day full-time. Can you talk through that kind of evolution of a business growth? I absolutely can. And maybe what I'll do with Chris as well is I'll send him over. I've got a video on my YouTube channel that talks to the difference between a COO and an operations manager, a directors of operations to try and uh, increase the understanding of what the differences are. Awesome. We'll make make sure we link to that for sure. Cause that, that's going to be, I think one of the big questions of people like, well, why do you need a COO? What's an ops manager or whatnot? So give us the, give us the reader's digest version on that. And that will definitely be a clip that we put together with your video. That'd be, that'd be awesome because that is a question we get a lot. I don't really understand what does a COO or an integrator, that's the other word, um, what, what do they do? And so when you're looking at you know, 250000 and actually I see it a lot when people hit the $150,000 mark, they bring on an EA. They, they, whatever term you call it, a personal assistant, an executive assistant, a scheduler, it's those oh, can you keep reminding me that I have to do this? Can you make sure that you coordinate an appointment with this person over here? Can you just manage my to-do list? Tell me what I have to do every day with those little things that I I don't want to forget because they're critical, but I can't really keep them top of mind for myself at all times. That's when you're going from smaller 
$125,000. And I've seen them go all the way up to the $500,000 mark, but that can be the only person on their team, except for the marketer. Right. <laughs> That's usually another important hire. And then when you're moving over to an operations manager or a business manager on different titles, of course, anywhere from the $300,000 mark up to the $700,000 mark, somewhere in there, you bring on your operations manager. Now you're talking, you're talking revenue, right? Like 300,000 to 700,000 in revenue. Annual revenue. Exactly. Which depending on the business Uh, could be $30,000 in profit or $290,000 in profit on that, you know, 300,000 in revenue, right? Really, really can change based on the industry overhead, things of that nature. Exactly. Somebody who's bricks and mortar would have a very different business structure than somebody who's a coaching business, for example. Right. Right. So super, super different. Um, when you're doing the operations manager or the business manager, they're coordinating with the different team members. I'm going to talk to your bookkeeper and make sure that the reconciliations were done. I'm going to talk to the scheduler and make sure that the podcast was was set up. They're making sure that all of those levers happen and that everybody who's a vendor for you, because usually when you're smaller, you have lots of people who do things for you in different ways, but they're not on your team. They're the third party vendors. So I'm going to coordinate with all the third party vendors as an example and make sure that they're held accountable to meet the timelines and deadlines and costs that they had committed to in whatever the project was. Yeah. When you're moving into the 1 million, even to $10 million range. And actually Bob has, has gone even further than that as a fractional COO. But again, it goes to the business structure. Right. Um, you really need somebody who can sit down and on the, on the small side of it, you want a minimum of a half day a week at that point in time, because ultimately you need those strategic conversations. They're going to need them with you, the one-on-ones that go, here's the vision in my head as the CEO and the founder. Now, I need to translate that through the COO or the integrator into making it come to fruition through the rest of the team. And that's the COO's magic power, if you will. Yeah. That ability to make strategic decisions, that ability to work with you to say, I've been here, I've done it before, um, I've seen this work best in your industry. What do you think about this? And then take it and make it happen with the team. Yeah. Yeah. So let me give a real world example of this. Um, And then I want to pick your brain about visionary versus integrator. I I just wrote that down. Um, You know, here's how Scott Grove's pre-COO and operations manager would work. There would be something top of mind in the market, right? And I would say, oh, let's do a free 30-minute webinar on this for loan officers. We'll give them 29 minutes of value and then one minute of, hey, this is why you should sign up for coaching. And it would be kind of slapstick and I'd be yelling at Chris to set up the Zoom thing and we would do this. And then, you know, through through like just sheer force of will, some Facebook connections, some friends and friends, we'd get 40 coaching members and 40 non-coaching members to jump on that webinar I wouldn't really sell from the webinar. I'd do a shitty job. I'd have no post-webinar follow-up. And maybe one or two people would sign up because they're like, man, I really like this Scott guy. He gave us a lot of free information. I want more of that. Um, let me sign up for coaching. That's that's Scott 1.0. Well, now Scott 2.0 with you know an operations manager and a COO, they're like, okay, so what we're going to have is we're going to have an Asana board so that when Scott says go, we have to have a <laughs> webinar next Thursday. Everybody knows their plan. You know, Bree puts up some Facebook ads. Uh, all of the advertisements get posted in these Facebook groups. We email this 5,000 loan officer email list that Scott has in Kajabi that he never used before. We actually email them to tell them about the webinar. We have a sequence of five emails that go out post-webinar to send it out to people and try to get people to sign up for the coaching. Bob is going to give me some coaching on how to sell within the webinar, right? 
And so this one that we just pulled off a week ago, we had, you know, 400 and something registrants. So we, you know, 5X'd the size of our webinar. 200 people showed up live. Uh, 13 people signed up for coaching post uh, webinar. We got a lot of goodwill out there and we got, you know, probably from rebroadcasting it in several mortgage Facebook groups, we got a couple thousand eyeballs on the webinar. Um, and it's just like this, you know, this positive self-fulfilling prophecy where it's like, if you build it, they will come, right? So it's like, I would always just kind of put stuff out there slapstick and the people that saw it, great, they would appreciate it. You know, they knew I was kind of an intellectual philanthropist, but now we have like a business built around that intellectual philanthropy where it's like, well, if Scott's gonna give a rock star free one hour, you know, webinar with tons of value for these loan officers, then we've got to have a systematic approach to getting some of them to sign up for coaching. And that's the difference between, you know, my price points around $300, $400 a month. So if I would get in the old model, one person to sign up, that's the average person stays in about two years. So 300 times 24, what is that? That's like uh, 7,200 bucks. Now we've got 13 people times, you know, uh, $6,000, let's say, you know, now we generated $80,000 off that webinar. And, you know, people talk to me about how expensive this is to hire these people. And I'm like, no, when, when somebody pays for themselves, it doesn't, you know, and, and they're producing a, a positive return on investment. Um, it just, it doesn't matter how much they cost. As long as they're generating 2X, 3X, 5X the revenue, who cares what they charge? Like, I hope we get to a point where they cost me $100,000 a month because that means I'm making $500,000 more per month. So uh, that, maybe you can just keep that as a testimonial for your company, but what's what's going right there? And like, are we hitting that sweet spot of what these people are supposed to do? And I just want to point out some of the key things that you just said so that your listeners can tune back into that. You talked about the fact that there is a tool and a process for recording and systematizing exactly what you did. So although you did it one time, your back end now knows exactly what you need. So you come up Monday morning and you go, oh, my God, I had the best aha moment for value driven that I want to I want to provide. Hey, Bob, I want to do this and I want to do it on Friday. They've already got the assets, the system, the tools, the workflows. They just need to duplicate it all now to go to the next one. So yeah, you're absolutely right. What you come in and it takes a while to do the first time and you got to tweak it. And sometimes you have to do some trial and error and that's okay. And then you go forth and look at that. Right now you've got a system in place. You drop those aha moments. I mean, a typical visionary comment. (laughs) I love it Yeah, (laughs) because you're the idea guy. You're the guy that sees everything in terms of where your industry is going. You have a vision in your mind for exactly what you want your company to do. How do I want to impact positively in the world around me? This is, I have an aha moment. I'm going to do this. Right. And now you have the systems, the people and the processes in place to make it happen and generate the revenue. I'm going to give you a quote that you're going to love. And it's one of my favorite quotes that I just never live by because I'm like the visionary guy. I need the integrator to do the process stuff. Uh, My buddy, Hal Elrod, who wrote the book, The Miracle Morning, he says, uh, one of his quotes is, every success was preceded by a process. 
Like every success that we ever have in life is preceded by a process. You know, if you if you've lost weight, it's because you set up a process, you put your gym clothes, you know, next to the bed so you stumbled over them and you had to go to the gym, you cleaned out the refrigerator, you put your your healthy food on auto delivery, whatever you did. Like to lose weight, there was a process, right? To have business success, there was a process. To commit to making the daily connection calls of lead generation and building relationships, there's a process, right? I had my I have my calendar reminder, then I have my time blocked out, then I have my call sheet than I myself like there's a process for everything that creates success but as founders or visionaries or business owners or whatever you want to call it like we suck at implementing the processes it's really it's really a dilemma um so maybe this is where you describe to us what and I think this comes from the book uh rocket fuel or um yeah rocket fuel the uh visionary versus the integrator can you explain who's the visionary who's the integrator and why this creates a dynamic where Susan's business business exists. <laughs> and visionaries, they're amazing people. They are the entrepreneurs of the world. You're absolutely right, Scott. Uh, this does come from rocket fuel. It comes from the basis of the EOS model an entrepreneurial operating system. Great system. We talk about in. Uh, I say we, I'm putting myself in the COO seat. I know I sit as a founder of my own company, but I am a COO at heart. I don't like to be out front. I like to just get the stuff done for my clients. Right. <laughs> right. Ultimately, the visionary is that big idea person and the one that's going to drop a new idea about every 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And uh, Scott, can I can I tell you that 90 percent of them will be crap? Yes, yes. We have we have a whole parking lot of notes that are probably crap that never come back into my head again where like um, uh, Annie will tell me sometimes she's like, hey, I got a bunch of stuff to follow up with you on. I'm like, all right, cool. Go for it. And she's like, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I'm like, yeah, all of those suck. Just don't worry about it. We'll get to those at some later date. Like we, we have no time or energy to implement those or do those projects. She's like, Oh, okay. And I'm like, but just keep writing them down because eventually there's going to be a golden nugget in there that we are going to work on. But yeah, that stuff, all that stuff I gave you, that's crap. Just don't worry about it. So you're right. 90% of the visionary ideas are crap. And without that operations manager and COO in between you and the team, the team is running in every direction because they heard the last idea and they're trying to execute it for you. Right. And they're like, oh, what do you mean you switched the idea five minutes ago? I didn't know that. I was still working on that. Right, right. <laughs> like, oh, no. So the integrator, a good integrator will come in. And first, it's all about the fit. And you and I talked about this when you met Bob. It is all about making sure you have a good visionary integrator fit, right? If you have the wrong integrator, the wrong COO, the wrong second in command, it's never going to work. You've got to have that click that personality, that connection, because you're going to drop a bunch of things to them. You're going to have conversations with them that'll touch on all variety of topics. And if you don't feel you can be transparent and there's trust there, it's not going to work. The integrator will then take those ideas and they might have a pile that says the long-term parking lot. Yes. Long-term parking nice lot. Terms. A lot of cars <laughs> die in the long-term parking lot. They just rust out. The tires are flattened. There were shit ideas. It was like a, it was like a Yugo to begin with. And then it just rotted in the parking lot. Yes. And then we have the medium parking lot, <laughs> the things that you need to do, but you don't need to do today. Right. Right. But the COO or the integrator will talk to, to you about that, understand the business priorities, because they're going to have made you go through <clears throat> quarterly planning, right? We're at the end of September as we record this. Quarterly planning, if I cannot say it long enough, I have a client, 
a different client and they, they every quarter, well, I know we have this time, but can I just shorten it by half? Right, no. right. <laughs> no, I'm going to insist that we stick to the full time because I already cut the full time down when we did your calendar year. Right. <laughs> and it's already too short. So no. And you have to be able to understand with the visionary integrator model that that point of communication, you're going to get some no's. I know you're not going to like it as founders, but sometimes you need it in your business. And yeah. you need to be that that intermediary spot. I know for us in Q4, we have uh, our whole focus in Q4 is mastering our live events. So we have a small group live event for my inner circle. They're coming out to Scottsdale, Arizona. There are about 25 of us. You know, how do we make this the most impactful, financially viable, whatnot? Then we've got a online live event that's going to be open to hundreds of people. How do we drive the most traffic to that? Uh, and then I'm doing an in-person for the mortgage company I work for, Synergy One. We're doing about a 200-person like sales rally for two days. So it's like we've got these three key live events. And every time I bring a new project, Bob's like, hey, just remember, you know, you still got your mortgage business that you're doing a lot in. If we start backing up what, you know, if we start backing up too many projects on top of the live events, we're, we're going to stress test the system and we're going to blow it up. So let's just between now and the end of the year, really dial in what's our task list for a live event. Because, you know, the, the vision's curse is like, all right, guys, we're doing a live event on November 9th and 10th. Make it happen. I've got, I, I can come up with a great workbook and I know how to deliver a great live product. But they're like, okay, great. Well, what are we going to do for audio visual? I don't know. Figure it out. They're like, well, where are we going to get the workbooks and the lanyards and the name tags and everything printed? I, I, I don't know. Figure it out. It's like, didn't we use somebody last time? They're like, yeah, but we don't have that written down anywhere. Who did we use last time? I'm like, I, I think Minuteman Press. Call them, I guess, maybe, sort of. Um, and it's just like, it's this endless checklist of like, there's so much that goes into a live event with guest speakers and like, I, I don't know, do, do, does corporate pay for this guy's flight or do I use my frequent flyer miles? Like, are we buying the books at retail for the speaker or are we buying them in bulk at the author's price and then we're paying them to show up? Like, there's a million details that go into a live event and all I care is I just want to get on stage and add value to the people in the crowd. I don't give a shit about all of that other, like, check the box items, but apparently it has to get done. It really does. I, I had the pleasure, you talk about live events, which has its own level of unique uh, details that come up with it. Um, another operations manager on my team and I, back in the day, were working together with a client and uh, they put it on live events. They were thousand person events. It was at Ooh, one time a year. Thousand it people. Was, That's insane. Yes. And it was, hey, <laughs> we got to systematize this because we know it's going to be, you know, we were there at the first one. And so you do the planning for the first one so that you know when the next year comes up, okay, I needed four months to do that and three months right. to do this. It was awards. It was value. It was speakers coming in. It was hotel logistics. And you're like, wow, that, yeah. was, that was quite the Asana board. Yeah, uh, there you go. We like the, the I like the Asana tools. I know, because at three o'clock in the morning, if you have that aha moment, you can drop it in Asana for the conversation that happens the next day, then you know it's not going to be forgotten. Yeah. You know, and it's some crazy yeah. stuff. Like, like one of the small decisions we had to make, which ended up being a huge decision is for this live 200 person event we're doing in, um, uh, in Vegas for the Synergy One group. You know, one of the big conversations was, okay, we're going to pay for the hotel room and we're going to pay for this large event, but we're also trying to be cost, con cost conscious. You know, who do we commit to, um, 
who do we commit to travel, right? Because, oh my God, booking travel for 200 unique people is just a nightmare. Like if you don't have an infrastructure and a website, and one of the things I talked about with Bob was like, hey man, we're just coming out of COVID. Most of the people that are gonna come to this event are on the West Coast, so they can get a round trip on Southwest Airlines for 250 bucks. And or because of COVID, everybody's got a travel voucher buried somewhere in their email for a flight they had to cancel. Just put the travel on the loan officers and you know you probably save the company $70,000 plus the loan officer doesn't care. Like if they're not gonna spend 200 bucks to come to an event that's hosted by the company, then you probably didn't want them there to begin with. And it was like, it just eliminated this huge level of cost, complexity, and we haven't had one single loan officer come back and be like, oh man, I can't make it because I can't afford the travel. And it's like, oh man, what a giant headache. So that's going in the Asana board for the rest of time. Like, hey, you get yourself there, you pay for the travel, we're never booking that shit again, um, and we're gonna put on a world-class event and cater the food and pay for your hotel room, and we're gonna make it awesome, just get yourself there, um, which which makes sense, right? I mean, you're dropping $100,000 on a live event, the loan officer can spend 500 bucks to get themselves there and home. And then and then they book their own travel. It eliminates all the headache, eliminates staffing needs. It's just like, just a little tweak that makes a big difference where the founder would have just been like, I don't know, put it on my executive assistant. Now she's got to book travel for 200 people and she's pulling her hair out and wants to, you know, commit Harry Carey. So um, stuff like this matters, apparently. Strategic conversation systems and processes accountability. <laughs> Are you sure you wanted that 38% profit margin, Scott, or did yeah. you want to actually pay for everybody's travel? Yeah. Yeah. Did you want to lose money exactly. on this event? Totally. totally. <laughs> exactly. And these are conversations exactly. in the heat of the moment. I think business owners can relate to this. You know, in my twenties, I felt like I got hundred dollars to death, right? I was like always going to the ATM to pull out a hundred bucks for something. And then in my thirties, I was like, oh dude, I'm getting like $500 to death. You know, the copay for the, the hot water heater replacement or the gardener's got to reseed the lawn or, you know, I forgot that there was a car warranty extension I wanted to pay for for my, there's like in your thirties, you get $500 to death. And then when you own a business that's scaling to a million bucks, you can easily get $5,000 to death where you're like, oh, I, yeah, I totally forgot we we were going to do this new system with this new thing. And now we got to drop $5,000 worth of Facebook ads. And I'm like, oh, that sucks. And then all of a sudden, if you don't have a COO or an operations manager, you know, helping you with the books, you can easily turn yourself into a very, you know, unprofitable company overnight. You can, you really can. You just take a look at your example of the event, right? You're in person. Somebody comes up to one of your team members. One of your team members doesn't have a system or process in place. You're on stage and they say, hey, uh, would you like us to bring in tea and coffee for the back of the room, which wasn't originally on the plan? I mean, my gosh, that, that can start adding up because it's a per head fee for the tea, the coffee, the food, whatever it winds up being. Sure. $5,000, please. Yes. So Chris has a great example of this, the the tea and water. And we were at, uh, I, I'm going to call him out by name because it really bothered me. It was the Arizona Grand in Scottsdale, Arizona. And Chris, maybe you can remind us, what did we pay for extra iced tea? Because like they basically, without asking us, just kept bringing gallons of iced tea and everybody in the mortgage industry loves iced tea, you know, because we can't drink beer till like 501. What did we pay for extra iced tea? Well, first of all, it has to be acknowledged that the iced tea was $650 per gallon. $650 per gallon of iced tea that was brought into the reception area. 
without us asking for it. And I think they tried to add $3,000 to our bill for it. Yeah, they added like five gallons of iced tea that they brought in because they're like, hey, do you want to refill the iced tea? And we're like, well, yeah, it's water and tea. So I imagine it's just complimentary. Nope, $650 per gallon. And so when I got the final bill, you know, instead of like breaking even and doing the right thing for our coaching clients, which I really don't expect to make money off our live events, it's kind of a break even or a small loss leader to get people to sign up for coaching. Uh, instead of us like breaking even, we were negative like five or $6,000 because of all the stuff they snuck in on the food and beverage bill. And I mean, this stuff can just eat you alive as a business owner. It can. And you need somebody to look at it. Most founders and CEOs, they hate the numbers. I don't want to look at the KPIs, the dashboards, the numbers. That Those are just numbers. I want to go deliver value and do these big things. Right, right. Can, right. can you explain for the person that's watching um, what a KPI is, why they're important, and maybe like for my business, for example, give me some key KPIs that you would guess Bob has us, you know, uh, uh, monitoring. So, so talk a little bit for those that have never heard that acronym before. What's a KPI and why does it matter to our business? Everybody's business works on metrics, numbers. And so a KPI, it's an acronym. It stands for Key Performance Indicator. Just a fancy term that means that every week, yes, week, every week we look at certain numbers. We want them to be leading numbers where possible. So I'm just going to say leading versus lagging is an important detail. What on earth does that mean? Well, that means you don't want to always be looking at your lagging indicators, the things that have already taken place, like your finances, right? right? Last month, we did X number of sales. Great. But that was last month. That won't tell you if you're on track for this upcoming week or upcoming year or anything like that. So I'm guessing you're looking more at your leading indicators when you are talking to Bob. For the most part, you've got to have some lagging indicators in there. Yep. And a leading indicator is predictive. So if you have a funnel and the top of your funnel looks up here and it says, hey, um, I want to know how many people from my ads go into my page, how many people from my page buy the product that's the self-liquidating offer probably, then from that you want to go through to how many sign up for the email, how many actually get on a call with me, how many, you know, how many book, how many show up and how many do I close, right? If you see the top of the funnel and the rest of the statistics that you already know go from one piece to the next all the way down, you can predict what's going to come out the other end. Totally. So I'm guessing you do things like looking at return on ad spend. You probably look at how many people have purchased in the week. How many people have looked at your ad in the week? How many people have bought? Because you, you got to know your sales numbers, right? right? I would guess you're looking at retention figures. You're looking at churn because you're running a coaching business, right? Yep. And so people come and people go and you need to make sure you understand what's going on with that dynamic. Am I kind of close with that? Yeah, you're real close. And the, on, the only caveat, which is weird about our business is Bob could not believe my numbers for two reasons. One, if I get somebody on a call, the close rate is basically 100% because they, they've made up their mind at that point that they're going to join coaching. They've seen enough of my stuff for free on Facebook. Um, you know, they got a strong referral from a friend. So he's like, wait a minute. If you get them to book a call, you're closing like, let's not say 100, 90%. Nine out of 10 people, you know, one gets cold feet or they're trying to just get it for free or whatever. I'm like, yeah, no, the closing ratio is that high. I'm like, the problem is I'm only booking like one to two appointments a week. And he's like, okay, so... I can't believe you're at that number, but that's great. What about on the other side, like the top of the funnel? I'm like, I have no clue. So basically in working together, what we've identified is that there's this sweet spot of combination between 
Um, the size of our email list and the size of the people I have influence with in mortgage Facebook groups. And so I'm giving out little free information in these mortgage, you know, Facebook groups. And then they're also seeing me via email. And then one day they just decide, oh, I need a coach. That coach is going to be Scott. Let me schedule a call. And that's why we have like a 90% close rate. So now a bunch of our KPIs is uh, LinkedIn, uh, Facebook people that are following our business page, Facebook people that I have influence in either in my mortgage consolidated coaching Facebook group or other mortgage centric Facebook groups. Like how many people do I have influence in or I can get eyeballs on in social media? So it's like, all right, we grew the Facebook group from 4,580 to 4,820. You know, we want to see like a five to 10% growth in that Facebook group until we get to 100,000 combined loan officers in our email list, plus Facebook, plus LinkedIn, whatnot, because then we know at the top of the funnel, we'll have 100 coaching or 500 coaching clients instead of 130 coaching clients, and then the sky's the limit. And so we've kind of helped, Bob's helped me reverse engineer, where do you have influence and where are your clients actually coming from? Because if you have 100% close rate, we just got to get that, you know, two appointments a week up to five appointments a week, and you double your revenue. Um, so that's been, that's been really cool to to see the KPIs of like, where do we need to grow in influence and followers and interactions? So then that turns into appointments, which still close at like 90% if they know who I am. So it's pretty cool. Um, it's like a real business. <laughs> Imagine that. Imagine, go figure. <laughs> for, for everyone who's listening, it's really important that for your business, you take the time to look at the customer journey. So I did this, I, I, I tapped Bob on the shoulder as one of two other COOs that I brought in. And I, and I do want to point out that Bob's great for your business because of his experience and his expertise, but we have other COOs on our roster that have uh, different bets to them. So one of them, for example, is a CPA. So I brought in that one and I brought in Bob. They were both kind enough to, to give me some time in July and we mapped out the customer journey for my team. And so I said, I really want you to just have that conversation and tell me I'm wrong. I'm going to put on the founder seat and take out the COO hat. And you can tell me where I'm making all my mistakes. That's okay. But it was exactly that. You're like, okay, well, um, I know that for this step of the journey, so the top of the funnel, if there's 100 people coming in here, I know that we have a conversion rate of 28 to 32%. That's on average over the course of the last year. Um, my background, I'm actually a scientist and an epidemiologist. So I tend to look a little longer at my numbers just because it's it's how I like it. <laughs> so yeah. not everybody does it. Some people use averages of seven to 20 days and that's great. Uh, that will work too. As long as you're not using something that's too, too short, like one day, one day's worth of Facebook ads will do nothing for you. <laughs> right. Don't do that. So when you're looking at some of this stuff, we went and we said, okay, well, our top of the funnel is actually not bad. We've got a return on ad spend when we do our stuff from our Facebook ads into the, into our funnel, which is our self-liquidating offer for our tools and templates. They're my favorites that I put together as a bundle. Cracks me up when I hear people and they're like, oh, this didn't work. Like I literally gave you for free the tool that I used with my very first client that saved them 40,000 recurring revenue a month. <laughs> you mean you didn't implement it? That's what right, you're telling right. me. <laughs> yes, that, can we, okay, can we stop on this? Um, <laughs> something not working doesn't work for two reasons. Either the tool itself doesn't work 
or you didn't swing the effing hammer, right? So it's like, it's like, yeah, okay, either you had a hammer and you really needed a screwdriver, or you had a hammer and it just sat there on the table and you never actually swung it, right? Because I get the same thing in our coaching business. They're like, ah, oh, Scott, I really love you. The personality is great. The information you're giving me is great, but the coaching is just not really working for me. And I'm like, oh, okay, uh, let me dig in deeper because I want to know what we could do better. Have you been coming to the daily calls? Well, no, I have kind of a scheduling conflict. Okay, well, have you watched the replay of the calls in our Facebook group. Well, you know, I don't want to go on Facebook because then I get sucked into like two hours of like pettiness and arguing about politics. I'm like, okay, well, are you making the daily calls? Well, no, I, I, I really, you know, I just can't find the motivation to make the calls. I'm like, okay, so it's not that the the coaching's not working. You just haven't implemented shit. And that's okay. I'm not offended. Like, we're all different seasons of our life. Sometimes we're lazy. Sometimes we're in growth mode. But it's not that the coaching didn't work. They're like, yeah, that's true. Um, I'm still going to cancel or, hey, let me recommit for 60 days to actually doing the stuff and seeing it works. And not surprisingly, the people that recommit and actually do the stuff, it, it works. Go figure, right? Um, anyway, I digress. Go figure. I just want to get that. I, <laughs> oh, no. I hear you all the time. I am just dumbfounded. Oh, so you didn't do the thing that you knew you had to do to get the results and now you're upset. Yeah. Yeah. I never complain at anybody else ever except for my wife, for the fact that I'm fat because I know what I need to do. I need to eat less like unhealthy foods and I need to move my body more. Those are 100% up to me. Now, I can tangentially complain at my wife a little bit when she brings like not so healthy food into the house and I'm like, honey, I have no self-control. You cannot have a bag of Doritos in the pantry because if it's Friday night and I'm catching up on like, you know, House of Dragons or something, I'm going to eat the whole damn bag of Doritos. So please, honey, I know myself. I know how I get fat. Please just don't have that stuff in the house. Hide it in your trunk for when you need, because my wife has amazing self-control. It drives me bonkers. She can have like three chips and then put the bag away for two days. And I'm like, how do you do that? I have to eat the whole bag of chips. Anyway, so she's the only person I complain at. But I, I know what to do. That's why I never complain about it to anybody that I'm like carrying around an extra 15 pounds of weight because like I know what I have to do to get rid of it. I just choose not to do it. So um, I I. I despise when people complain about their lot in life and they know what to do. Like, if you don't know what to do, if you don't have that opportunity, I'm with you, dude. I want to get you the opportunity. But if you know what to do, just quit bitching about the fact that you have not done it. Come on. Yes. Goes back to the generational thing. If, if I can take another sidestep over sure. there. I watched a YouTube video. Um, Jason Dorsey was the guy's name, the Gen Y guy. He was referred to once upon a time. I always laugh so hard when I watch this one particular link to the video because he has a piece in there. And I know I'm a Gen Xer, so I, I get it. I'm a little bit older. Um, but he talked about millennials and how you have to communicate with them and you have to break it down step by step in reverse order. And I was like, what? <laughs> I couldn't understand it, but literally uh, the way their mind works because of the school system and all sorts of other whoops things, um, it's very hard for them to understand if they don't understand the outcome first. Interesting. If they don't, if millennials don't understand the outcome first. So think about this when you're coaching your team. If I'm coaching a team of millennials, I want to paint the big picture. I want to tell them what I'm going to tell them, tell them, then tell them what I told them. Great. But I have to do it in reverse order. So all of my steps, I can't start at step one. I have to start at step five and reverse it backwards. 
Interesting. Chris, can you look up with the birth years on millennials? Because I want to make sure before I pick on them, I'm getting the age bracket right. Um, but this kind of, you know, this kind of reminds me of Tom's shoes, right? So Tom's shoes started out with the big idea first. We're going to save the world and put shoes on poor people's feet. And then they're like, okay, how do we reverse engineer that into a business? Well, we'll sell shoes that have a high enough profit margin that every pair that you sell, you know, you get to give a free pair to an underprivileged uh, poor family in a country or whatever. So I'm guessing for like those millennials, which Chris will look up the age bracket on that. A millennial is generally 81 to 96. 81 to 96. So they're in the, uh, they're in the 40. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just pre millennial in 79, but I'm not quite an Xer. I'm an old millennial. You're an old millennial. So it's like the, the 25 to 40 year olds right now, somewhere in there, you know, they've got to start with, Hey, you're going to work here at Tom's. And by working at Tom's, we're saving the world one pair of shoes at a time. And now let me back that all the way down to, that means you have to go get coffee for the CEO if you're like a new executive assistant, right? But you got to start with the big picture. You got to start with the end result. Like we're saving the world by keeping the visionary happy. The visionary is happy when he has coffee by eight o'clock. So now you have to go get the coffee. That's part of your job description as an executive assistant versus if you just tell a millennial, hey, okay, every day at 8.05, there's a you know grande latte on the CEO's desk. They'll be like, well, that's stupid. Um, but you got to you got to start you got to start with the end first when you're talking to these people. You do, you do. But if you're talking to a boomer, right? If you're talking to Bob and you say, hey, Bob, um, I just need you to get coffee at, every day at eight oh five. He'll go, okay. Yeah, that's part of his job. It's part of the checklist, right? right? It's like you just do the checklist. Yes, you do the checklist. You come here. You do because it's okay that you got this grand vision. That's great. That's why I wanted to be with the company. But you don't have to tell me the grand vision every time that I, you're asking me to do something new to show me how it fits into the picture. It's not how it works. Interesting. So, you know, I feel like millennials, Gen Zers, Gen Yers, you know, they get this bad rap of like, you know, being lazy. Join us next week for the second half of this podcast.